We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on whose land this podcast was produced and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. We would also like to acknowledge the commitment and sacrifice of First Nations people in the preservation of country and culture. This was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. I remember going up in the helicopter not long after that fishery rung up and they said, oh, they, they're going to get a helicopter and they're going to go look, uh, look around the saltwater country here. And they said, you want to come? And I said, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll jump in the helicopter with you and we'll go for a look. Right after Cyclone Yasi hit the wet tropics of North Queensland, Phil Rist looked down from a helicopter. Over the top of the range, when, you, when we were flying over the range going down to Wingham, and then we were going to come up along the coast, along the beach. And uh, the Alexandra Palm, they normally flower a certain time of year, but the hill was, it was, they were, it was, it was like they just responded after this disaster. And then they were blooming everywhere. They were flowering everywhere. It was an amazing sight, you know. And uh, So your country, you know, it's, it goes through its natural processes and, and how it heals itself and that. But it's still a long way to it. it, it, it it's still not hundred percent there. Some some vegetation like the the mangroves and some of the country up the back here are still still recovering from it. You know, you can see the the scars are still there, but it'll come back. You know, it'll come back. This is Creative Responders, a podcast from the Creative Recovery Network. I'm Skosha Mokovich. This time, we're taking you to Cardwell, halfway between Townsville and Cairns on the east coast of Australia, to look at the regeneration after Cyclone Yasi. You're going to hear about the role arts, culture and Indigenous-led recovery played in the immediate response and in the years since. When the cyclone hit, the local Indigenous Arts Centre turned into a shelter. What happened next changed the way the local First Nations leaders and rangers see their role in the community and emergency response. My name's Phil Rist. I'm the executive officer and one of the co-founders of Girrigan. Phil's led Girrigan since it was founded in the mid-1990s. And uh, I'm a Nawagi person from around the Ingham area. Girrigan Aboriginal Corporation is a traditional owner, managed and owned community organisation in North Queensland. We're between two major world heritage areas here. We've got the wet tropics world heritage area. goes right down the end of my country, down the southern end, and goes all the way up to Cooktown. And uh, then we've got the, um, the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park world heritage areas. And then you go towards uh, some open sort of um, gum tree country and black soil plain and and that as well as all more semi-dry sort of country. It represents nine traditional owner groups in the area, bringing them together to run a range of programs. Well, if we start from the south, we've got Maya Mob, the Nawagi people, we've got Warragamai, Banjin, which is Hinchamog Island Mob, uh, and Gitomay here, Juru, which is around Mission Beach area, Gulnay from around the Tully River area, Gugubarden from around Greenvale, Jitterbull from around the top of the part of the, the, the um, Atherton Tablelands, uh, around Ravenshoe and those sort of places, uh, Herbert, and then Warrenu people, which is out towards uh, 
a little bit further north and Google Bard and people were in Greenvale but further north right up the top upper reaches of the Herbert River area there. So they're the, they're the nine groups. You know, vast country, you know, big area, big area. And um, yeah, we've been together now for a long, long time. Kurrigan fills all sorts of roles in the local community. There are always a lot of activities going on at once. It runs a ranger program, advises at a policy level, maintains a nursery of local native plants. And on the day we visit, 30 young people are doing their coxswain certificate so they can go out on water country and help monitor and protect the reef. But something they're known for throughout Australia and internationally is their arts centre. The Girigan Arts Centre is in the main street of Cardwell. If you drive the four hours up the coast from Townsville to Cairns, it's right in the middle. You'll see there's some beautiful big boomerangs painted with local art and uh, it's a great way of grabbing the, the traveller's attention. Joanne Russo is showing us around. I'm the manager of the Girigan Aboriginal Arts Centre in Cardwell. So we're, um, yeah, we've come through our beautiful big glass doors into the gallery space. As you can see, it's uh, full of work created by the uh, nine traditional groups we work with. So the works you see here are a representation of their history, their culture, and the new stories about the ever-changing lands around them and environments around them and how they still connect to country today. If you've seen the work from Girigan, it's likely to have been a bagu. There's a display of traditional bagu on the back wall of the gallery. To you and I, or people who are unfamiliar with them, they look a little humanish form. They're a traditional tool used to create fire. It's historically known and predominantly used throughout the region with the groups that we represent and work with. And they're based on the fire spirit and it is in the image of a man. Um, each one is made from wood and painted in ochres from the local clays around the area. Each pattern you will see is a signature of the artist and expresses or marks ownership of the bugle. These bagul are the traditional form, made out of local wood. The hard is the, the fire stick itself, which is referred to as the jaman, and then the body itself is the soft, which is the milky pine, and you put the two together, rub, and creates fire. And they can only be created by certain people in the community, adhering to certain protocols. There are a lot of protocols around the traditional form. Certain people from the groups can make them and, you know, we try to adhere to that and through consultation with the elders, they were given permission to create a contemporary form which is more inclusive of everyone in the community. This contemporary form of the bagu is in the gallery too, displayed in a cabinet all colour on stands of different heights. And because the bagu form is so unique to us. It was a way for all the other artists to create that branding awareness of rainforest country. 
but then also give them a form or a uh, medium in telling stories of their own, whether they are traditional stories or whether they're contemporary stories. So, you know, some of the stories are about creation, some are actually about the changes in the environment, you know, the impacts to the environment. You know, you see trees, you see flowers, you've got a landscape with birds, colours, patterns. It's constantly just a reflection of what they're seeing and what they're doing in everyday life. And they are very special and the artists, they use them in a very uh, interesting way of even expressing moods and how they're feeling at that time, you know. You get happy ones, you get sad ones. These contemporary Bagu forms have been displayed in galleries and exhibitions around the world. There are some along the foreshore as you drive into Cardwell. I'm sure when you would have been driving in, did you notice there were three on the foreshore? Yeah. I've been told that's one of the most Instagram photos for the Cardwell region. I'm trying to do something. <laughs> it's a podcast. While we're talking in the gallery, one of the Girigan Rangers comes by. Hello, Michael. So Michael's one of our Rangers. My name's Michael George. I'm a proud Wagamai man from down in Ingham. I'm one of the new senior Rangers here. I've been here for about three years. So basically what we've been doing now at the moment here at Girigan is um, mainly some bit of compliancing on the waters um, with fisheries and marine parks and do our own compliancing for cultural reasons um, and fires, we Girigan does their own plan, plan burns now, which I help manage and whatnot. Can you explain maybe a little way of how you work with the local elders in deciding these kind of projects that you do or the way that you then engage back into country as a protector? So everything that we do for, with the rangers actually go through the elders, well, all the nine tribes that are under Girigan our ranger coordinator contacts them, or our communications officer actually contacts them. We go sit down with them before we actually do the project, tell them what we're going to do, where we're going to do it. We even bring them with us out in the country itself so they get back on the country and they'll talk to the country for us to do the work. And we try and get our elders as much as possible, get them on, in the cars, make them get taken places they haven't been in years because, you know, these, these days the elders' wisdom and knowledge is very valuable to us and that's what we need to do and get back to to the country itself and actually try and preserve it for the younger generation going through. This engagement with local elders through the Arts Centre and the Ranger Program is essential for Girigan. And the knowledge they share is increasingly important to disaster preparedness as the impact of climate change becomes even more apparent. We have one of our Gitterman elders here, Grande Claude. He was talking to us about what's going to happen at Murray Upper and Murray Falls and like that. And he said, it's just the seasons are just changing too much. We had a big wet season and now look at this, it's a big dry season coming up and it's going to be massive for us. And he's saying he's never seen it like this before. They normally have the perfect seasons so they know exactly when, what to do and what not to do on certain seasons. And He's saying you can't really pick it at the moment. It's just three months of the year supposed to be for wet. We had five months of rain, so and now it's going to become a big dry season, and then it's going to make the rain 
made it worse for us. Michael is helping out with the Coxswain training in the workshop space today. And it's clear he's often around the art centre as well. So the rangers assist us when we want to go out on country collecting materials. And all of the programs are like that. Every program that Gerrigan has, each and every one is intertwined with each other. And which is great because then there's more minds, more collaboration, just bigger and better things and just really diversifying because everything revolves around culture but also it's about the environment in which we live and how do we protect that and maintain that through cultural knowledge and practice. The artists gather on Tuesdays out at the ranger station in the National Park that's been turned into a workshop. There they work with clay, wood, painting and weaving. They share stories and work some of those stories into their art. And some tell the stories of what's happened here after Yasi. Most of the new contemporary weavings that we are looking at at the minute are made from a various recycled materials. Joanne shows us some weavings that don't look like the others. They're made out of comms wire. Some of them originally said we have other Mindy's. Mindy's were actually used to hold a message stick, so it was a way of communicating. So we're taking a modern way of communicating, recycling it in a traditional way of communicating. So it, it's, I think it's very ironic, especially after Yasi, you know, anything that is laying around, instead of just going to landfill, were taken. Actually, there were some leftover chainsaws that were after Yasi that were used part of the cleaner and they were repurposed into a sculptural piece. So yeah, nothing is ever wasted and if there is a limit on natural materials, we go scouting for anything that may be used as a substitute. In February 2011, tropical cyclone Yasi was building off the coast of Queensland. Yazi was a massive Category 5 cyclone. People evacuated the region or sought shelter where they could. As it approached the coast, Premier Anna Bly told Queenslanders it had the potential to be the biggest cyclone the state had ever seen. And there was like 40 or so people in Girigan at this time now, kids and all. Phil was one of those people gathered in the art studio at the time, it was still behind the gallery in town, about a block back from the beach. We was there when we first started, we had mattresses and everything, and then the coppers come in and they see us and they said, oh, we've got to tell you guys that if it hits at high tide, this will all be under. So our modelling has told us that if it arrives at high tide, uh, and they pointed to the wall and said, this is, where, this is how far the water would be. Come on, you guys, roll up this wag. We've got to get out of here. You know? They got as many people as possible upstairs to the second story of the Kirigan offices. And some of the men stayed downstairs. They ended up you know, staying there. It wouldn't have been ideal trying to move around at night with this thing bearing down, so we had to start moving. And I think it was about this time now we started packing up. You know? But that was where we was first. And then so some of the men stayed downstairs and everybody else, women and children and babies and that, uh, went up, went upstairs, up into the, up in the top there. Ah, oh, it was, it was a frightening, frightening show. It felt like, uh, if I could describe it, it felt like some, 
evil monster or something just trying to rip the ceiling off. You know, you could you could hear it come, and it just goes, and then it, and it's like he's really he's trying to dig his finger into the roof and rip it off. The storm moved past Cardwell, up over the mountains, cutting a destructive path through North Queensland. Getting up in the morning, it was yeah, it was like something out of War of the World. At the back, sitting, standing up on the back veranda. Oh man, you could almost expect to see those big giant things walking, you know, all that sort of stuff. You know? It was pretty freaky. It was pretty freaky. The, the change was drastic, you know. The Girrigan Office and Art Centre was still full of people. The cyclone damaged 75% of Cardwell's properties and destroyed crops on surrounding farms. The highway that ran through town looked like it had been swallowed up by the beach. So when um, they set up a, uh, uh, like a bit of a uh, emergency centre down the, at the library there, where everybody met and... After a few days, Phil and his wife headed down there to get some water and supplies for everyone holed up at Girrigan. And he ran into one of their partners. And he said, oh, we've been waiting for you to turn up here because we want to talk to you about um, entering into an agreement between Girrigan and the state government to employ about 30 or 40 uh, people. For Phil, it was recognition of the role Girrigan was already filling in the community. And they waited for me specifically to get there to that emergency centre to have a yarn about that. I signed the contract there and then, and uh, and so we had uh, went through a process of getting around 40 people signed up to start uh, participating in in the clean-up, you know. And some of those people that were part of that still work for us as Girrigan now, you know. And so we had our Ranger program, and we had this new program uh, that we, we were managing, Girrigan was managing it, and... So there was that concerted effort into, uh, uh, from Girrigan perspective and, and government, I suppose, but uh, uh, in, in really diving into the recovery process, you know. It was new territory for the organisation, but not unlike what they already did as rangers. And, uh, you know, they would, uh, they would go around to people's backyards, you know, and, but because they were a little bit to the side, they were able to go on oh, let's go out and help Mrs Jones out here, or, you know, there was, a, there was, a, there was that, that flexibility there, I suppose, or whatever, you know. And the only way that some of those community members could, could really show their appreciation, other than a cup of tea and a scone, you know, was going and putting it up in a public place. And they, so they'd, you know, you'd go down to the IGA supermarket there or wherever there, on the public notice board, and there's all these little yellow stickers saying, we thank you, Girrigan. Thank you. We really appreciate you guys coming and helping us. And just a little story with. I should have collected them and kept them, but I didn't even think about it. But it was so. It was. It was quite emotional to see that that stuff there and how people wanted to show their appreciation. Yeah? It's really opened up our eyes to how we should better respond to this stuff or be better prepared to respond to it into the future. We was always keen to be involved in the community, as I said, but that was a day that. I think that was a time that that became, you know, uh, a profound reality then. Not only did it cause Phil to rethink the role Girrigan played in emergency response, but it changed the way the organisation approached community and social issues. So before Cyclone Yassi, we were 
heavily involved in basic cultural heritage and our many stuff, you know. But when that cyclone hit, that was still was there, but our how we dealt with the social issues went went through the roof. Uh, how we deal with our people, around and stuff. How we, like I mentioned about, you know, health and and, and even education, all this sort of business. Those social issues really, really became uh, come to the fore there. So we had to shift our thinking from the normal, not shift, but maintain that, but shift, uh, but now focus a bit on on that stuff as well. Yeah. In the years since Cyclone Yazi, the importance of the art centre in building community resilience and fortifying the confidence of traditional owners and elders has become clear. And and we've been doing that ever since. It's become uh, a much more even sort of a level now we've got to look after a mob and this this art center is one of those mechanisms for doing that you know people have pride and they and they as we spoke last time ago they they use their art to tell their story about cyclone yassi and that and their personal journeys and that the story of this shared experience was articulated and shared through the work produced the grief over the cyclone's impact on country and importantly its capacity to regenerate. Something else you can also see reflected in the art from the time is the resilience of community that was collectively rebuilt. Phil says the process of engaging with the art centre over the years since its establishment has been transformative for some. I've grown up with these people all my life. They've gained confidence in telling their stories. But now they're jumping on planes, going all over the world, standing up in front of audience to be on a podium and speaking and, and speaking with so much confidence and I scratch my head sometimes and think, what the hell's happened here? <laughs> you know, in a good way, you know, what's that? And, and uh, that is, that's part of coming out here, sitting down with each other and, uh, and fellowshipping with each other and, and sharing stories and ideas. In 2015, the United Nations endorsed the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction. It's an agreement adopted by the international community that maps a way forward for reducing the health impacts, economic losses and physical damage caused by disaster. Something really important about Sendai is that it recommends that post-disaster reconstruction should be based on respecting cultural sensitivity and free prior informed consent of Indigenous peoples. This is significant. It acknowledges that something needed to change in the way governments were engaging with Indigenous populations. It's a shift that places greater value on Indigenous knowledges in the development and implementation of policies. The Sendai Framework, together with the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, has the potential to launch a new generation of resilience building where Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples work closely together. Indigenous peoples all over the world have coexisted with large weather events for many centuries, relying on signs from the environment to indicate seasonal change. And from a cultural perspective, you know, um, uh, those, those storms have been around for thousands of years. As Phil points out, the impact that colonisation has had on the landscape around Cardwell has changed the impact cyclones and other disasters have on the community. 
white man intervention has made these these storms even worse you know and a lot of elders say that you know that, um, that the, the farming practices pastoralists or whatever but they change water courses straighten them out and all so when the water comes down it just rushes down and takes everything or and so forth so the, the changing landscape has really added to you know that could have been a category three or four cyclone but because of the, the changing of the landscape it's become a five. Indigenous people have always had strategies to prepare for these seasonal weather events that are now referred to as natural disasters. But the changes that have been imposed on the land have disrupted the deep connectedness between land and people. And, um, uh, and it's around season, you know, we've had no, we had only, we had uh, our cultural calendars. We didn't have a paper that say this is November, December. And this sort of stuff, we had a calendar, seasonal calendar, uh, and that's when they moved into the higher country. Into, and up the back up here, there's there's caves everywhere, Scotia, and that's where a lot of them would go and set up a semi-permanent camp there. And and that, but also in the rainforest, um, it was a, a bit of a natural break. The the Barrier Reef was a was a um, was a natural barrier as well. Um, and other than that, you just try to hole up somewhere and just wait, I suppose, you know. So colonisation, through infrastructure overlay and agricultural impacts, has enhanced the impact disasters have and disrupted the capacity of First Nations communities to adequately prepare and respond. For this reason, it's important to acknowledge that decolonisation goes hand in hand with Indigenous peoples leading the way. While the international framework emphasises drawing on Indigenous knowledges to enhance scientific knowledge, poorly handled engagement could exacerbate these problems. It's an issue made more urgent by climate change, with increasingly unpredictable and extreme weather events. Uh, my name is Soraya Wiles. I'm a Gitamay Warragabay woman, so Gitamay from Cardwell region and Warragabay from Ingham um, region. Um, I'm the communication officer here at Girrigan. I've been here for four years and two months now. Um, started off as a volunteer um, because I just wanted to come back to country and work for my people and I was very passionate about what Girrigan was about um, and I wanted to work for my mob. Soraya's main role at Girrigan is to engage with the traditional owners and keep them informed and engaged in everything the organisation is doing. What are the opportunities for traditional owners um, and just to let them know about any sort of opportunities um, out in the community as well with some of our partner organisations. But a lot of it is based on our land and sea country activities. We need to see traditional owners from the wet tropics centred in discussions around climate impact. You know, there's a real shift in it in the sense that um, you know, it is affecting a lot of our country within the wet tropics. Um, I think my real focus is, is trying to prioritise, um, you know, what effects of climate change are affecting our region. It's a conversation she's having more and more with elders who have a deep knowledge of country. They're the people that would actually see the significant changes like in terms of what used to be a very 
you know, full running creek is now no water there. And so there has to be a reason why there's no water. Um, so, you know, it's like looking at, um, you know, how to investigate those things and use tribal ecological knowledge to the Western science knowledge. Um, and, you know, using our partners that we work very closely with, like Terrain NRM or Wet Tropics Management Authority to, um, you know, find or investigate those things. One example is right off the coast. You know, like I know in sea country, it's definitely um, coral bleaching. Um, you know, that's a big thing for us because we have six saltwater groups and one of the biggest coral bleaching is in, I believe, Juru and Gidame country, which is Cardwell and Mission Beach. So, you know, I think rather than not talk about it, I think we need to talk about it now and, and really need to, um, you know, educate our traditional owner community about, you know, th these are the climate change things that are happening, you know, and, and I guess just engage with them and ask them, what are the things that you notice that could possibly be climate change effects? And then work on, I guess, solutions, how to, to I guess, minimise them or to solve them. So um, I'm very concerned because, you know, I don't want to see our country, um, you know, be degraded anymore. Um, you know, we've had a lot of rainforest, especially in the Girigan region, um, removed for agriculture. Um, you know, and I think a lot more work has to be put back into reconnecting those, you know, rainforest areas. But yeah, look, I, you know, climate change is affecting us quite rapidly. And I think, you know, like we need to start acting really quickly, but it's just about how we do that and how we get all of our people together because nine tribes is such a lot of people and the country we have to cover is like 1.2 million hectares of land so a massive task it is a massive task but you know anything's possible i definitely think girigan has has been like a um you know a big support in terms of bridging that gap with the community look some people are still very old school. They're still very set in their ways. But, you know, you can only just keep trying. And I think the more we tell our story, the more we share, and the more that the broader community can understand where our people are coming from and, you know, why um, country um, and cultural practices are so important to us, I think they might just come around. At Girrigan, there's a concerted effort across the Arts Centre, the Ranger Program and their post-Yasi emergency response to centre Indigenous knowledges and traditional owner-led decision-making. But given the problems are exacerbated by colonisation and framed through non-Indigenous structures, how can Indigenous knowledges be incorporated in a meaningful way by emergency management? What is best practice here? And what I call it is contemporary sovereignty or de facto sovereignty. Phil points to the relationship Girrigan and the government now have on water country as an example of what is increasingly possible across a range of sectors. When years ago there was no such thing as legitimate hunting turtle and dugong in the white followway. There was always legitimate hunting in the black followway. But in the white followway there was no such thing as legitimate hunting of turtle and dugong. And and Girigan, we were the first to 
establish this thing called the traditional use of marine resources agreement. And it is based on our sovereignty. Fast forward now, whenever one of our mob want to go hunt a dugong or a turtle, they must come through Girigan and then we refer to the relevant traditional owner group. And there's a whole process in this here before we issue that authority. And it is us that issued the authority, not government and not anybody else. So when we issue an authority to hunt, we then let Grumpa know, the Great Bear from Park Authority, that Girigan has just issued a, uh, an authority. And that's all the role that government playing, and a bit more there. But, but it is us under our decision-making process and under our own process that we issue that authority to take a turtle and on nobody else, you know. So we act as if we have sovereignty, and the world acts as if we have the right sovereignty. And that, that's just part of this process. Uni is building that cultural legitimacy and that sovereignty, but in a way that everybody's a part of it and everybody recognises it. We've heard about how Cyclone Yasi changed the relationship Girigan had with the local community and how it changed how the organisation approached social issues, doubled down on the need to build capacity for the resilience of the Indigenous communities it supported. But it was the catalyst for another change. It set an example of how Indigenous rangers could mobilise in emergency response. Three of our neighbouring ranger groups turned up, they just turned up out of the blue. But uh, having said that, they, they went through their own troubles to get there, you know, and... This outside, practical support from Indigenous rangers made Phil realise the potential for the rangers in emergency management more broadly. If they were able to mobilise in response to Yasi without any structures in place, what could be possible with formalised connections and training? How about we get better at doing that as an alliance of all the... Because in those places, the, the, the ranger programs have more gear and more resources than... Government sometimes, they've got boats and you know, tractors and goodness knows what else. And Girigan can imagine their lessons from Yazi being implemented by other Indigenous ranger groups. And we went, armed with our experiences from that, we went to um, the Ingenue, which is way up the top, up in the Cape, and um, I think it's the northernmost part of this, this country before you start getting into the Torres Straits and into New Guinea. And every year uh, they used to have these big northern rangers, northern Australia um, ranger uh, conferences where all the rangers from Kimberley's right across over here to come together, indigenous rangers. And so we uh, um, put together a bit of a PowerPoint, a presentation, and we went to that rangers conference and says, said to them, well, we've learnt, this is what we've learned. Their presentation put forward the idea of an Indigenous Rangers disaster response strategy. It was met with unanimous support. Girigan is now leading the process with government and partners to develop this further into an emergency response protocol framework that can be adapted and implemented in consultation with traditional owner groups across different communities. And it just seems like a massive sin if we don't be in a position to mobilise those sort of resources to react to this sort of business, you know. Creative Responders is an initiative of the Creative Recovery Network, hosted by me, Skosha Monkovic. A special thanks to Phil, Joanne, Michael, Soraya, 
Nephi, Joyce, Olivia and the rest of the Girrigan team. The series is produced in collaboration with Audiocraft, with executive producer Jess O'Callaghan, producer Selena Shannon and Creative Recovery Network project manager Jill Robson. The sound engineer is Tiffany DeMack and consulting producer is Bo Spearham. Original music was composed by Mikey Squire. If you are interested in supporting your community in challenging times, we would love you to join us by becoming a member of the Creative Recovery Network. You can sign up on our website. You could also connect with us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We'd love you to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast. You can find it in all the podcast apps and you can also listen at our website. Just go to creativerecovery.net.au forward slash podcast. This is where you'll also find links and resources for further reading about what we've covered in this episode. The Creative Recovery Network is assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its arts funding and advisory body. Thanks for listening.